Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature Adrian Rogers. Dr. Rogers was pastor at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. God's blessing on Adrian Rogers' ministry became more evident with the birth of Love Worth Finding Ministries in 1987. Today, Adrian Rogers presents a sermon on the windows of heaven and the doors of hell. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of the Revelation, chapter 2, and we'll look in verse 8 in the book of the Revelation. Tonight, the title of our message is this, The Windows of Heaven and the Doors of Hell. And I'm reading beginning in verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now let me just pause there and say when the Bible speaks of the word of, of the angel of that church and uses the word angel, it is the Greek word that means messenger, and it literally means to the pastor of the church. You see, the pastor is the messenger to the church. Angels are God's messengers, but not only are supernatural people angels, natural people may be angels. You didn't know your pastor was an angel, did you? Well, I'm an angel. And so uh, every church is supposed to have an angel, a messenger, the pastor of that church. And here the, the pastor of this church was a man named Polycarp. And so the Lord had a special message to the pastor for him to deliver to that church. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now this word Smyrna is a very interesting word. Actually it's translated uh, other places in the Bible. Myrrh. Myrrh. Do you remember when the wise men came and visited the baby Jesus? They brought three gifts, didn't they? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's the same word. It's translated here, Smyrna, but it's the same word that's translated there, myrrh. And it was a sweet perfume that came from being crushed. It was sort of a aromatic uh, type of perfume that was a balm to be used in healing and sometimes to be used uh, in embalming. Another time that this word is used in the Bible, this same word Smyrna that is uh, translated Smyrna here, actually the word myrrh is when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross. And you remember the Bible says that when he was in agony there, they offered him wine mingled or mixed with myrrh, the same word. Another time that this word is used in the Bible is when the Lord Jesus Christ was being buried and they took the grave clothes and they poured in spices and myrrh. It's the same word. It is translated here, Smyrna, but it, it, it actually speaks of that sweet spice called myrrh. I thought you'd be interested in that because I think it is by the providence of God that this church was the suffering church and the name here takes on a special significance to us when we realize this. Smyrna was a beautiful city. It was a model city, a Greek city. It had great broad highways, all of them running at right angles. There was one road that went up from the sea right up to the Acropolis, a golden way. And on one side was this marvelous temple. On the other side was this marvelous temple. And then another temple. And then another temple. And then another temple. A golden, glorious street. And then it came right up to the very mountaintop where there was the God of all of the gods of that day, Zeus. And then on the other side of this Acropolis was a giant theater. 
No, it was a place of culture and it was a place of wealth. It was the pride of the Greek Empire and it later became the pride of the Roman Empire. And here in this place, in this mighty metropolis, and incidentally it is still one of the largest cities in Asia today, in Asia Minor, I have visited this city. Today it bears the name Izmir, Izmir in Turkey. And it's the same as, as this Smyrna. And Izmir today is a beautiful city, a wonderful city in many ways, one of the largest cities in Asia Minor. And it was, it was in this city that this little church began. This little church that was so impoverished and so poor, but yet on the other hand, the Lord said, you may seem poor to men, but you are indeed a very, very rich church. So I, we could call this the rich little poor church. The rich little poor church or the poor little rich church. It makes no difference if you understand what I'm talking about. In the eyes of men, they were poor, but in the eyes of God, they were very rich. Let us continue to read. And, and unto the angel of the church at Smyrna write, these things saith he, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Of course, that's what Jesus says. Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus was dead and is alive. And then Jesus says to this church through the angel, through the pastor, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, here was a little congregation. It was blessed of God. They had a pastor that they loved. They had a Lord that they followed. They had a book that they believed. And they were winning people to Jesus Christ right there on the very doorsteps of hell, as it were. And persecution set in. And we need to learn this truth. Leonard Ravenhill said it, and he said it well. And this is the truth that he said. When God opens the windows of heaven to bless us, the devil will open the doors of hell to blast us. I want you to think about that. When God opens the windows of heaven to bless us, the devil will open the doors of hell to blast us. That's the reason I've called this message about this poor suffering church, the windows of heaven and the doors of hell. Because here was a church that had been blessed of God, significantly blessed of God, mightily blessed of God, and yet here was a church that knew severe and deep tribulation, persecution, and poverty. Actually, the message to this church is in three uh, phases or, or three lines of thought. First of all, we see a message of tribulation. And then we see a message of treasure. And then we see a message of triumph. I want you to notice the tribulation of this church. I want you to notice the treasure of this church. And I want you to notice the triumph of this church. And I want you to listen and listen well. Because again, this is not what God was saying. This is what God is saying. And remember what we've said when we study any passage of Scripture. We have to ask three questions. Number one, what did it mean then? Number two, what does it mean now? And number three, what does it mean to me personally? You see, we're not just studying ancient history about some church back yonder. Friend, we don't have time for that. 
What I'm trying to say to you is there is a message for you because I am convinced that the sands of time are running out for our generation. The hourglass of this dispensation is running low and the skies are glowing crimson with the threatening storms of world distress. The hour is late and we need to understand what our Lord is saying to a church that may be facing in the future severe persecution. And what God may be saying to you and to your family who may be called upon to suffer and to be God's myrrh in this day of persecution that may come to test all of those that dwell upon the face of the earth. Now, first of all, I want you to notice the tribulation of the church or the trouble of the church. Notice again, please, in verses 10 and 11. Fear none of those things which thou shalt Suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. This tribulation was in three forms. First of all, there was the tribulation of persecution. Secondly, there was the tribulation of poverty. And thirdly, there was the tribulation of profanity. And we're going to see those things that they faced. They faced the uh, tribulation of persecution. This word uh, tribulation that we see here is, comes from a Greek word that is not the ordinary word for tribulation. It's the word philipsis, and it literally means to be crushed. It is the idea of a person being executed by having a huge stone rolled on them. It's the idea that is sometimes used when grapes are crushed and the juice of the grape is squeezed out. And the idea here is not just people who are aggravated, but people who are under intense pressure. That's the word that is used here. And the Bible speaks of their persecution. The Bible speaks of the pressure. Now, it doesn't mean here, this tribulation that they faced, it doesn't mean uh, the common trials and heartaches that all of us have. It is talking about difficulty that we suffer for the cause of Christ. It's not talking about uh, uh, having a headache. Some people think they're bearing the cross when they have a headache. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about scorn and persecution and tribulation that uh, we would not bear were we not Christians. Now, why did they have this tribulation? Well, let me say that this city was a, a very beautiful city, but it was a very pagan city. They had temples for all of the gods. Now, had the Christians just simply been willing to fit in, there would have been no tribulation. If, if they had just been willing to say, well, we'll, we'll just build us a temple to Jesus Christ, and then we'll have a temple to Apollo, and we'll have a temple to Aphrodite, and we'll have an, a temple to Jove, and we'll have a temple to uh, Hermes, and we'll have a temple to uh, Mercury, and... Dionysus and, and uh, we'll have a temple to uh, Daphne. We'll have a temple to all of these. And oh yes, we'll have a temple to Jesus Christ too. The Christians would have gotten along just real well. But they said there is none other than Jesus. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And also there was another problem there this day. Because while they had many gods and while they had polytheism, there was one uh, that you must all worship. Now you could choose to worship if you wanted to Apollo or you could choose to worship Hermes or you could choose to worship uh, some of these other gods. But there was one God that you had to worship and that was the Caesar. You had to worship Caesar. 
Everybody had to say in this day, Caesar was Lord. Now, why was that? Well, they wanted to unify the kingdom. And in order to unify the kingdom, they said, we have to have a common denominator. And that common denominator will be emperor worship. At first, the emperors rebelled against this, and then they saw the wisdom of it. And so they deified their emperor, and their confession of faith was Kaiser Curios. That is, Caesar is Lord. Kaiser Curios. Now, no one ever paid that much attention to it, but they just had to say it, and that was it. And that showed that they were a good sport. That showed that they were willing to fit in with things. That showed that they knew how to play the game, that they were uh, uh, not uh, against everything, that they knew how to cooperate, and they were a part of the system. So at least once a year, they had a special place where the people would come. They'd take a little pinch of, of incense, and they would throw it in the fire. And they would say, Kaiser Kurios. And the man would note it down and, and give them a receipt. And they had pledged their allegiance to Caesar. And that's all there was to it. Except when they refused to do it. <laughs> and these Christians refused to do that. They refused to say that Caesar was Lord. For they knew that Caesar was not Lord. They knew that Jesus Christ was Lord. And so there would come a time when these Christians would be brought there. And they would say, say, Kaiser Kurios. And these Christians with brimming eyes and quivering chins would shake their heads and they would say, No! Christos! Kurios! Christ is Lord. That's why they knew this persecution. That's why they knew this tribulation. They would not fit in. They would not bend. They would not bow. They would not budge. They said it and they meant it that Jesus is Lord. And because of that, they had all kinds of trouble. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we are in danger today, and I read it in so many books and so many magazines and hear it on so many radio programs, that, uh, that the idea has gotten out today that if you're a Christian, then automatically you're going to be successful. That being a Christian is going to make you prosperous. That being a Christian is going to make you happy. That being a Christian is going to give you ease and joy through this life. And we equate Christianity with success. And we equate Christianity with popularity. It is not so. You're not going to have that success and prosperity and popularity just because you're a Christian. You need to learn that there may be adversity and that people may hate you. Now, there's, there are three ways I want us to look at this persecution that this church uh, uh, faced. First of all, I want you to see it from the human level. Look at it in verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. From the human level, it is misery. And sometimes God's people, God's Christians, go through unmitigated misery. Uh, you call the roll of the great heroes of the church, and you'll find out that almost every one of them has suffered what the world would call misery. From the human viewpoint, it is misery. From the satanic viewpoint, it is mystery. Look again in verse 10. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Now, it's no mystery that they were cast into prison. We know that they were cast into prison. But the mystery is why God allowed it. How, why does God allow the devil to do this to his children? God could stop it. That's very obvious. From the human viewpoint, it is misery. From the satanic viewpoint, it is mystery. But from the divine viewpoint, it is ministry. Look at it again. Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. 
Oh, the Lord knows what he's doing. It's just the trial of our faith. And even though God allows the devil to do it, God has a purpose. And notice that God is over it all. That the devil does not have free reign in the hearts and lives of people. Notice what it says, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Aren't you glad it says ten days? Now, it doesn't mean ten literal days. The, 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 the Bible uses the term day to mean 24 hours. It also uses the term day to mean a defined period of time. For example, the Bible speaks of the day when the Lord created the heavens and the earth. Well, he created it in seven days, but six days and rested on the seventh. But also it uses the term day to mean a period of time. And when the Bible says here that you shall have tribulation ten days, it means there are going to be ten definite periods of tribulation. There were ten Roman emperors, and each one of these Roman emperors came and had a definite time of tribulation and persecution against these early Christians. Now, why ten? We said something about the use of numbers. Remember? Remember, we said one was the number of unity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. Two is the number of witness. In the mouth of two or more witnesses, a thing shall be established. Three is of the divine number. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Four is the earth number, the four corners of the earth, the four points of the globe, the four winds of the earth. Six is the number of a man. Because man was created on the sixth day. Seven is the perfect number. That's the reason we have seven messages to seven churches. But ten is the complete number. If a man in this day had ten fingers or ten toes, that spoke of completeness. And because of the ten digits, ten came to, to, to mean completeness or fullness. Now what God is saying is, there's going to be a full and a complete persecution. But God is saying, I am over it, and it, it's for a limited time, and, and uh, it's going to begin, and it's going to end. It's going to have a starting place, and it's going to have an ending place. And God knows what he's doing. God allows his saints to suffer. It, there is a certain ministry to it. There's a certain trial to it. There's a certain testing to it. I was reading a while back about a, a Christian in North Africa who was in the army. And someone asked this Christian, why are you a Christian? He was an army officer. He said, I'll tell you why. He said, on a particular day, we went out on a march. It was almost a forced march. We were tired and weary. We slogged through the mud all day long. Our boots were uh, dirty and our clothes were heavy. We came into the headquarters. We came into the barracks. We were cross. We were irritable. And he said, when I came in, there was an orderly, a young man, a part of our outfit who had already come in, cleaned up, was kneeling down by his bed, saying his prayers with his head bowed. He said, when I saw that man, somehow I became so irritated and so aggravated at him, I took one of my dirty, muddy boots and I hit him side the head with it. He said, the young man paused for a moment and continued his prayers. He said, when I awoke the next morning, both of my boots were beautifully polished and set by my bed by that young man. He said, that's what brought me to Christ. You know, listen, friend, it is when God's people suffer as Christians that this world begins to look at us. Now, we may not want it. We may not ask for it. And certainly I'm not asking for it. But if it comes, let us suffer as a Christian, as the Bible says. Oh, dear friend, from the human viewpoint, it is misery. From the satanic viewpoint, it is mystery. But from the divine viewpoint, it is ministry. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. All right, so they faced, they faced pressure. This word means pressure. This word means persecution. It means being squeezed in. But not only did they face pressure, they faced poverty. Notice in verse 9, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty. They were very poor. 
And I'll tell you why they were very poor, because their goods had been confiscated and because they could not get a job. You see, each of these gods that they worshipped, they had societies called guilds. And uh, in order to be in one of these societies, you had to worship that particular god. And they had their guild that, that, that meant it was like belonging to a trade union. And if you, uh, if you worship this god, you worked there, you went to those parties, you were in that social set, you got a job, you got a promotion, according to the god that you worshipped. And these Christians would have nothing to do with that. And therefore they were on the outside. And they were passed up. And they didn't get the best jobs. And, and no one cared for them. And besides that, be, when they refused to confess faith in Caesar, when they refused to say that Caesar is Lord, at the very best, their goods were confiscated. At the worst, they were put to death. And so our Lord says, I know thy poverty. Had you driven up to that church, it would have not had carpet on the floor. It would not have had a beautiful chandelier. It would not have had a grand organ. It would have not have had uh, air conditioning and cushion pews. These things are not wrong. These things are gifts from our God, and we thank our God for them. But let, let me tell you, had you come up to this little church, doubtless there would have been something like a dirt floor. It may have been a little lean-to. They may have been meeting in someone's house. There would have been no Cadillac excuse me no jewel chariots on the outside it was a it was just a little uh, just a little handful of people and and outwardly they were poor they did not have of this world's goods but our lord said but you're rich i want you to look at this he says and i'm going to say a little bit more about that later on he says i know your poverty <laughs> but he says you're rich and the word rich here is the word we get our word plutocrat from he says you're plutocrats you're some folks now you're you're the highest of the high you're in high society you are my plutocrats you are rich but our lord looked at them and the lord knew uh first of all their persecution and then the lord knew their poverty and then the lord knew the profanity that they faced i want you to look also in verse 9 and i I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. There were people who were blaspheming them. Uh, there were people who were profaning the name of God on their behalf. And there were people who were just bringing profanity and blasphemy down upon their heads. Now, we have read it to my shame, and it breaks my heart to know that the church of the Lord God so-called church, I don't believe true Christians, but Christians in the name of Christ have persecuted the Jews. That's the reason it's so hard to win our Jewish friends to Christ because they equate Christianity with the Crusades and with persecution and many Jews have been persecuted by the church. But in this particular day, the shoe was on the other foot and there was a colony of Jews there who, was, who were helping to persecute the Christians. They hated the Christians and they had the ear of the Caesar and they were saying certain things about this church and they were blaspheming this church and blaspheming and profaning the name of Christ. People were speaking ill about them. Jesus says, I know your persecution. Jesus says, I know your poverty. And Jesus says, I know the profanity that you're facing, the blasphemy of them that say they're Jews, but they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. And they persecuted these early Christians, something terrible. And friend, I want to tell you also that you and I are going to be blasphemed. 
You and I are going to be profaned. You and I are going to be evil spoken of if we live for the Lord Jesus. There's no way that we can get out of it. The Bible says all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And I'll tell you a verse that's meant a lot to me in the last few months. Blessed are ye when men shall persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Now notice that, that it must be false and it must be for Jesus' sake. I've had some people say some terrible things about me because of a stand I've taken for the Word of God. But it's a shame that uh, today, that sometimes even from within the camp, we have those who uh, oppose our, our cause and what we believe in. And, dear friend, we must make certain that what they say about us is false. And we must make certain that what they say about us is for Jesus' sake. And then, if we know that it's false, and if we know it's for Jesus' sake, then we're not just to grin and bear it. We're to go home and giggle all night. Jesus said, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And here they face that profanity. Listen, friend, I tell you, Christians are not supposed to get along with everybody. Everybody's not supposed to like us. You know, I know some places when you go and you mention my name, you better duck or you better pucker. Because either they're going to swing at you or try and kiss you, one way or the other. And that's the way it ought to be. I mean, we ought to be loved by those who love the Lord. And we ought not to necessarily be loved by those who do not love the Lord and His Word. All right, now, we've noticed the trouble of the church. Now let's notice the treasure of the church. Notice what our Lord says again in verse 9. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but notice this parenthetical phrase here. But thou art rich. You are plutocrats. You see, the genuine riches of a church does not consist in its buildings, its cushioned pews, its music, its well-dressed congregation, or a scholarly preacher. Laodicea, the last church that we're going to mention had all of these things. They had eloquence in the pulpit and elegance in the pew, and they made God sick. He said, you, you make me want to regurgitate. That's what God said about them. We're going to talk about Laodicea a little bit later. He said, uh, because you're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. But here was a church who didn't have any of these things, and yet in the sight of God, they were rich. Don't get the idea in your head that it is wrong for you personally to have wealth. Or that it is wrong for a church to be blessed spiritually and materially. We read in the Bible of some churches who have been blessed of God spiritually and materially. And we read of some Christians and some people who have been blessed of God spiritually and materially. There's no great benefit and blessing to being poor. But I want to say this, dear friend. That if a person is poor, and they're poor for Christ's sake, how rich they are. How truly rich they are. Dr. Havner said, and I want to quote, he said, I'm often amused and amazed at the way we equate Christianity with success, popularity, and prosperity. We may not admit it, but we use the same old gauge the world uses, except we employ religious language. It would appear that gain is godliness. And yet he says Paul's formula is that godliness plus contentment is great gain. You hear people get on the radio today. One particular preacher I know of, I'll not befoul my mouth by using his name, who uh, is telling you all you have to do is just write him. Send him some money and you'll be rich. <laughs> and the same way that he's getting rich, you'll get rich. Oh, that's, that's so much tripe, so much junk. 
I believe the hottest part of hell is reserved for these religious racketeers. Oh, God, help these dear people. And, and the foolish people who are, are caught up and swept up by this. No, dear friend, uh, uh, that the Bible warns about those in the last days who supposing that gain is godliness. The Bible says from such, get away from, flee from these people. No, godliness with contentment is great gain. Again, there's nothing wrong with having material things, for it is the Lord thy God that giveth thee power to get wealth. But oh, how sad it is when we sacrifice our, our spirituality uh, on the altar of our wealth. I heard that one time the, the, the Pope and Thomas Aquinas were walking up and down, looking at the vast holdings of the church, and Thomas, uh, the Pope said to Thomas Aquinas, that great theologian, no longer do we have to say silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas, remembering that passage of Scripture where the phrase came from, he said, yes, and no longer can we say, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Oh, dear friend, we need that power, that spiritual power, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Now, I want you to notice not only the trouble of the church and not only the treasure of the church. They were very rich. And incidentally, you want to know how rich you are? You want to know how rich you are? You add up everything you have that money cannot buy and death cannot take away. And then you'll know how rich you are. That's how rich you are. Everything that you have that money cannot buy and that death cannot take away. And then you'll know how rich you are. How sad it is for a man here to have his pockets lined with money and to be a pauper in the sight of Almighty God. I want you to notice thirdly and finally, not only the trouble of the church, the tribulation of the church, and not only the uh, treasure of the church, but I want you to notice the triumph of the church. I want to read again verses 10 and 11. God says through uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and the angel of that church, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death. And I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, to be faithful unto death does not mean to be faithful until you finally die. That isn't what it means, although we ought to do that. We ought to be faithful right up to the end. But to be faithful unto death means to be faithful if it costs your life. Be faithful if it means they put you to death for being faithful. Be faithful unto the death. You know, it'd be a wonderful thing if in America we had people who feared the second death as much as they fear the first death. I believe we would have a spiritual awakening. Now, notice why we're not to fear. Jesus says, fear none of those things in verse 10. <laughs> he doesn't say you're not going to face them. He doesn't say they're not going to happen. He doesn't say I'm going to get you out of them. He just says, fear none of those things. Why does he say fear none of those things? Well, look in verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. Now, what does that mean? Jesus says, don't you fear any of these things because I was here before there were any of these things and I'll be here after there are any of these things. So don't you be afraid of them. Just don't fear those things. They're all under my feet. You're going to suffer, but that's all right. I'm going to take care of you. Polycarp, as I've already said, was the angel of this church. He was the minister of this church. He was a contemporary of the Apostle John who wrote these things. And Polycarp 
the pastor of this church, was brought before the Roman officer. He was asked to renounce his faith in Christ. He was commanded to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar. And Polycarp refused. And they said to him, if you will just offer incense to Caesar, we will give you your liberty. We will let you go. You can go back and continue to live out your life. But you must deny Christ. And this is what Polycarp said, and I want to quote his words. Polycarp said, now he's an 86-year-old man. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he hath never wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? And when they heard that, they were so incensed that they clamored on this man to burn him at the stake. And they brought their wood and they brought their faggots and they heaped them around his feet. And then they brought some hammers and nails and they were going to nail Polycarp to the stake. And when he looked out and saw them coming with their hammers and their nails, he said, you will not need such fastenings. There'll be no need for you to nail me to this stake. Spare your nails. God will keep me steadfast in the fires without the need of such things. And then Polycarp said, I count it a blessedness to be thought worthy of a place among the martyrs of Jesus Christ. When that fire was kindled around his feet, he stood in that fire and he was heard singing and praising the Son of God and blessing Jesus Christ. He was the angel of this church to whom the Lord Jesus was speaking, saying, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. We're not to be fearful. We're to be faithful. Now, many of you may not die at the stake. You may not be carried to the wall and shot. You may not be imprisoned for the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not have a chance to die that way. But ladies and gentlemen, can we not die to ourselves? Can we not die to our sins? Can we not die to this vile world? Can we not die to our plans and our ambitions? And can we not say that Jesus Christ is Lord? If others have read in the mouths of lions, if others have languished in prisons, if others have been scorched in the flames, can we not go out and go back to the school and go back to the office and live for Jesus Christ? Can we not do that? God help us that we shall. In this evil hour, these sin-bound, self-bound, hell-bound men and women need a revival. And we'll have revival when there are men and women, Christians, with burning hearts and brimming eyes and bursting lips. Men who fear nothing but sin and men who love nothing but Jesus Christ. Men and women, boys and girls, who will be faithful unto death. John and Mary Gaston were missionaries to China. They were deeply in love with one another, indescribably in love with Jesus Christ. They went to China, and for a long year, they studied in China the language. And then John and Mary Gaston went to the mission station, and John would go out on evangelistic tours. He loved to take the Bible and evangelize and preach the Word of God. And Mary stayed there at the mission. And while he was gone, things were more or less in her control. And she ran things. He came back after one of his preaching tours. And the Chinese doctor said to him, Sir, your wife is ill. 
And you cannot go away from her anymore. She needs you to stay by her side. She's a very sick woman. John and Mary Gaston talked it over. And Mary said to John, My dear, I want you to go. God shall look after me. God will take care of me. We came for you to go and preach, and it's not right. You go, my husband. I will be all right. I will be looked after. With reluctance and yet feeling the urging of the Holy Spirit, he went out and preached again and again. And one time when he came home, the doctor said to you, I warn you, your wife is gravely ill. You must take her to a warmer climate or she will die. And they thinking perhaps she could recuperate and then go back to the station. They hired some Chinese and they took a boat and put that boat in, in the river with a canopy over it to protect them from the elements. And they got some Chinese to row the boat and they started down the river to the warmer climate to where she might cooperate. And they went gliding down the river. She looked over at him and she said, John, I'm so glad, aren't you? I'm so glad that we were obedient to Jesus. I'm so glad that we came. He didn't look at her because he didn't want her to see the tears in his eyes. He looked away and he said, yes, dear, I'm glad that we came. They came to a place by the river where there was a tree by the bank, a beautiful tree. She was so tired. She said, John, look at that tree. John, could we go over by the bank and just rest under that tree? So he commanded the boat and it glided, glided over toward the shore. And John Gaston put his strong arms under the frail body of his wife and took her and spread a blanket there on the ground and let her rest in the shade of that tree. She looked up at him with languid eyes and she knew that she'd gone the last mile. She said, John, I can't go any further. This is it, John. This is the end. But she said, John, God brought us here. And John, no matter what happens to me, I want you to promise me, John, that you'll go back and you'll preach to the Chinese. He leaned over and kissed his beautiful wife and laid her lifeless head down there upon that pallet. When the Chinese saw what had happened, they were so fearful and not wanting to look upon that scene of a death, they went over the hill and away and left this man there. He went back to the boat and the only thing he could find to dig a grave with was an oar. And with an oar, he dug a grave for his wife. And with no one to prepare the body, he took what clothing they had, what bedding they had, and prepared a burial for his wife. He covered that grave with his own hands. There was no one there to read the scripture. There was no one there to say a prayer. No one there to sing a song. And then... He gathered a handful of flowers, best he could find, and placed them on that grave. Then he called the Chinese and he said, let us go to the boat. They got on the boat and they started down the river. And John Gaston said, no, not down the river. Up the river. Let us go up and let us go back and let us preach and let us fight. Let us die if needs be for the cause of Christ. John Gaston, Mary Gaston were faithful unto death. And the Lord Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler 
over many. The triumph of the church. Be thou faithful unto death, unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. How rich are you? Are you one of God's plutocrats? Are you? Thank God for it. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word tonight. We realize, Lord, that most of our lives we've had it relatively easy. Help us not to be ashamed of Jesus. Help us, Lord, not to deny him. Help us, Lord, to fear none of the things that shall happen, but to be faithful to death. Lord, we are so grateful for the good times we have and for the joy we have, and we don't want to be morose about it. But Lord, help us that we might see things clearly, that we might understand your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today's sermon by Adrian Rogers was provided courtesy of The Love Worth Finding Ministries. Find more great content on their website, Love Worth Finding at lwf.org. That's lwf.org. You've been listening to Adrian Rogers. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.